Welcome to Hill Country Institute Live, Exploring Christ and Culture. This is Larry Leninschmidt, your host, and we're excited to have an ongoing conversation about issues of concern and interest to the body of Christ. Hill Country Institute Live brings guests together with you to talk about issues of vital interest in our lives today. We visit the life and works of giants of another day, such as C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, and also spend time with people in ministries doing creative work to fight human trafficking, feed the poor, create quality art, be good stewards of the environment, and much more, all with the heart and mind of Christ. If you're interested in learning about the programs of the Hill Country Institute and hearing and seeing presentations from our conferences on faith and science, faith and art, and other subjects, visit hillcountryinstitute.org. We promise in this show to show the heart and mind of Christ, to treat guests and callers with respect, even if we disagree, and to be true to the historic Christian faith. Our special guest today is Dr. Harry Lee Poe, uh, my friend who I know is Hal. Hal is the Chuck Colson Professor of Faith and Culture at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. He's written and spoken around the world on faith and science, the works of C.S. Lewis and Edgar Allan Poe, and other topics. He's the leader of the Inklands Fellowship, a group which gathers to talk about the work of Lewis and Tolkien and friends in interesting places like Oxford, England, and Montreat, North Carolina. And uh, Hal and I first met at an Inklings Fellowship retreat at the Billy Graham Retreat Center about 11 years ago. He's president. Uh, he's, been, he's a past president of the Edgar Allan Poe Foundation and Museum. He's currently president of the American Scientific Affiliation, which is a group of Christians who are scientists, historians, philosophers, and theologians. And actually, he's the first theologian to be president of this group. So I better stop talking about him or, or we'll use up all our time just introducing him. So, Hal, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Larry. It's a pleasure to be with you to talk about a number of important issues. Excellent. Well, you know, we, we, it's hard to pin it down with you. I mean, you, you, you've got so many interests, and it, and it overlaps so much with our faith and culture and uh, the whole sense of, of what does it mean to think about culture that uh, it, it's just a delight to be able to, to have such a wide-ranging discussion. So I guess the first the first thing I might ask you is is what's it like and how does it impact you that that you're a, a descendant of this Edgar Allan Poe fella? Well, I'm not actually a descendant. Uh, Poe had no children. Oh. I am a cousin, though. He was my great great grandfather's cousin, and um, he's probably for the family been mainly a, uh, uh, an interesting uh, limb on the tree. Certainly, someone who's known internationally. Whenever I pull out my credit card in this country or abroad, uh, the person uh, uh, taking my money will invariably make some comment about Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> Sometimes they'll quote a few lines from The, the Raven or from Annabelle Lee, mm-hmm. but um, he's internationally known. He is the great American writer outside the United States and um, has had more influence than probably any other uh, American uh, in the the arts internationally. It's quite a quite a heritage, then, isn't it? Well, it is. It is. Yeah. So, and I will we'll come we'll come back to Edgar Allan Poe in the in the course of our discussion and his and his contribution to to faith and science because I think it's it it really plays well and you know it's I, an unknown I, story that will probably surprise or shock most of your listeners. Um, <laughs> So, yes, it's a fascinating story about Poe's spirituality and what he was actually up to. 
Yeah, because he's he's generally thought of as uh, you know having a, a, a darker side and not so much on a spiritual side, isn't he? That's right. That's right. It's a great misconception. Yeah. Well, you know what the the one of your books that you co-authored, God and the Cosmos: Divine Activity in Space, Time, and History, was uh, was co-authored with a scientist, and you're and you're a theologian, so. Uh, that would seem to say just from the get-go that you must believe that science and faith are, are compatible and it's not an either-or. Well, when you think about it, science does nothing but examine the physical world, and I believe in the God who created the physical world. So there's a close, close connection between science and faith. And uh, we sometimes forget that... Um, Science was an invention of Christianity, what we call modern science and the experimental method and all the foundational ideas that modern science depends upon were, um, were developed by um, Christians in response to their mandate to glorify the Lord. So, uh, yes, at root, um, science is a product of the church just like Sunday school. So if, if you didn't have a presupposition that there was order in the universe because of an orderly creator, what would be the point, or what could you even examine? With yes, this? it's an intriguing thing. Um, we were talking about this in uh, my class this week. Um, uh, the new atheists, of course, dismiss God, and um, uh, you'll find so many materialists who say you can't be a scientist and believe in God. And yet um, they accept all of the conclusions that have come about because of the fundamental presuppositions of Christianity. And yet um, they don't want to accept <laughs> the fundamental <laughs> assumptions of Christianity. It, and so it's, a, it's a, a bit of an anomaly there uh, how you're able to um, even do science. It's a, it's a bit like denying your, your parentage, isn't it? it? It is. It is. It's exactly that. Well, Hal, in the in the book, one of one of the things you state is is that you're you're not offering the book as a defense that there is a God. You begin from the standpoint it's not an apologetic in a sense for for the existence of God, but it but it could be construed as an apologetic for God's capacity uh, to work in the world, which 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 is a you know in a sense it's a reasonable question. You have a spirit being, you have a material world. Uh, how how does that work, and how does that come together? That's that's the nature of the two questions in the book, isn't it? Well, yes, it's um, and it, it's a question we that um, um, is not unusual for for a Christian to wonder about, to ponder, especially a scientist who um, who in all of their training learns the laws of nature, and so you've got this this these laws of nature. Um, and everything seems to operate by cause and effect. Only, if I know the physical cause, then where's God? And um, if I've got a totally closed system, then how can God be involved in it at all? And um, this idea pops up regularly. Um, it, it popped up in the late 1600s, early 1700s, uh, under the form of deism. And it was the idea that, that God exists, a God exists who established um, 
the physical laws and set the world in motion, but has been back not really doing anything since then. Um, and everything's up to us. Another form of it is more recent. Um, we call it process theology. But in effect, it's the same sort of idea that is um, uh, this acceptance of a closed system of cause and effect. And so where can God be in it? Well, in process theology, God is more or less along for the ride. He's not really doing anything, but he's a co-traveler with us. And just as we are evolving, God is also evolving and God is just as surprised as we are by everything that happens, but pretty much powerless to do anything about it. So, um, you know, he's just an, an, another fella, um, and um, uh, not exactly a Christian understanding. Yeah, because that, that really is. diminishes the idea of omnipotence and, uh, and, and pre-knowledge or foreknowledge. Yeah, so so for us, the, the, the question began, my colleague Jimmy Davis is, as you mentioned, a, a chemistry professor. And um, he starts off with a very simple kind of experiment that children um, uh, can do in the, in the kitchen when you mix up, you know, have that little chemistry set and mix a few things together and things fizz. Well, it's the same thing that happens when you open up a Coca-Cola and pour it over ice, things fizz, uh, which is a chemical reaction that's taking place. And so, you know, just his initial question, well, where's God in all of this? And our, our conclusion, remember our beginning point is, uh, this is not written for atheists to convince them that God exists. Um, it is written for Christians who are troubled by some of these questions. So we have our own set of assumptions. We believe in a God who created the universe. We believe in a God who spoke by the prophets, and the um, evidence he gave that he was God was that his prophecies were fulfilled. We believe in a God who stepped into time and space and took on flesh, dwelt among us. Uh, this God who died for our sins on a cross, who rose from the dead, and is exalted again to the heights of heaven where he rules the universe and we can talk to him and he hears us and he um, is the head of the church. We believe that this God, once exalted, didn't leave us, but in fact is still here in the form of his Holy Spirit. And that one day he will wrap up this universe like a scroll and stick it on a shelf and there will be a new creation. And that's our fundamental faith. That's the Christian faith. Sure, that's, that's orthodox um, belief. So we assume that. Mm-hmm. But um, a lot of people who do science and religion don't do it in terms of the Christian faith. They do it in terms of, and I'll put this in quotes, God. And it's sort of an amorphous God. It's the idea of God, but it... It isn't an approach that takes seriously that um, God is utterly transcendent. He is um, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. And yet, this God emptied himself and took on the form of a servant and was obedient 
unto death, which is a, a pretty big limitation of omnipotence. You know, one of the great uh, medieval discussions is is the fact that, that God cannot be hurt in any way. God cannot be affected in any way. But getting nailed to a cross and killed is, is a pretty big effect. That's a fact, yeah. But God can, can be uh, killed on a cross as the Son and continue in eternity as the Father. And you have to take that into consideration when you're thinking of a Christian understanding of science. It's not just a philosophical understanding, and there are a lot of philosophical views of science. But in the, the last 150 years, most people who did science and religion were really doing philosophy. Yes, and I'd, we're, going to need to, we're going to need to break for a moment, but I'd like to come back to, to, the, to the Trinitarian view of God and how that impacts and how that's different from uh, other religious views, the mm-hmm. Eastern views, uh, Judaism and talk more about the philosophy. So we'll, we'll, we'll take a break and be right back. Uh, I invite anyone listening to visit the website of the Hill Country Institute. That's hillcountryinstitute.org. We have recordings and videos from our past conferences. Topics include spiritual formation in the life of C.S. Lewis, faith in science, and faith in art. Speakers include Eugene Peterson, Alistair McGrath, Andy Crouch, Steve Meyer, Walter Kaiser, and many others. And if you're looking for gifts, the CDs and DVDs make wonderful gifts. That's hillcountryinstitute.org. We also invite you to visit our Hill Country Institute page on Facebook. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Hill Country Institute Live. This is Larry Lennon-Schmidt, your host, and our special guest today is my friend Hal Poe. Hal's a fellow of the Hill Country Institute and teaches on faith and science and a lot of other interesting topics like C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien and, and uh, some of the intersection of how these authors and their thoughts uh, come together and how we view Christ and culture. Uh, Hal, before our break, we were talking about some alternative views which we'd, we would consider either non-Christian or some deviation from Christianity. And I wonder if you might visit a little bit on the Eastern religions, Judaism, how, how uh, Islam, how other religions view the faith and science interaction and debate. Uh, Larry, it's interesting that um, the questions that Americans have are not necessarily the questions that... Um, um, people would have in India or Saudi Arabia. Um, every worldview has its own conception of the way uh, the world exists. And um, every religion has a particular perspective on reality. So in Islam and um, um, certainly the the um, mosaic re- religion of Israel under the Mosaic Covenant, uh, the conception is of um, uh, a single, all-powerful God who commands and uh, the forces obey. This is uh, like a monarch. Um, and in Islam, the, the problem uh, for science ever developing and and, and most most people who study these things agree the problem with Islam and science 
was that there's only the will of God. You can't have laws of nature um, that's independent of uh, God's decree. Everything happens because God wills it to happen. I'm moving my hand right now because it is the will of God that I should move my hand, and my tongue is moving right now because it is the will of God. So you don't really have a place for the development of science the way it developed in the West, even though uh, Islam had inherited the tradition of of ancient Greece and had a, a head start of several thousand years on the English and the Scots and the and sure. the Germans. Um, so that's one approach. Now go to um, China and uh, and Buddhism or Japan Zen Buddhism in. In those cultures, God under Buddhism is not a personal being. In fact, in that system, the universe doesn't even exist. Uh, the, the universe is an illusion. Um, everything is, is ultimate reality, only the perception that there's anything here would be the closest thing you would have to sin in that system it's a, a, an illusion that, you're, that you've accepted that isn't true. And so you can't have science develop in a system where you can't have experimentation and you can't have experimentation because there's nothing to experiment with because the universe doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and there with this non-personal um, spirit, you don't have intention. You don't have um, love. Then let's go to India. And with India, it's sort of the inverse of Buddhism in that everything is God. In, in Zen Buddhism, nothing is. But in, in Hinduism, everything is, and everything is God. So one of the famous um, teachings of Hinduism would be to point at a chair and say, um, you are the chair and to point at the light and say, you are the light, to point at the rug and say, you are the rug, because there's no differentiation. Well, in that view, it's impossible to do experimental science because everything is one thing, and there's no difference. Um, C.S. Lewis referred to Aristotle as the philosopher of divisions. Before you can do science, you've got to decide (laughs) something is there. (laughs) <laughs> and to identify it, that's part of what science does. It describes the differences between things. And so every every worldview, every system has a way of perceiving reality. Modern science grew up in a, in, in a world in which people believed there is a creator God who intentionally, purposefully plans things, has a meaning to it, and thus the universe has meaning and purpose. And that not only did he do it, but he did it good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, from the perspective of the, the beginnings of science, uh, when Francis Bacon coined the term, the full term is not the laws of nature. The full term is God's laws of nature. And so the understanding from the beginning was that people violate the laws of God. We call it sin. But trees do not violate the laws of God. 
the water does not violate the laws of God. Sure. Rocks do not violate the laws of God. They are obedient. Mm-hmm. So things that are not human are obeying the laws of God. And with that understanding, that system of, of, of seeing that what is here is the result of, of intentionality by God, then it's an act of praise to see what God hath wrought. That would, that would be brought out in uh, a verse like Psalm, in Psalm 19, the heavens are telling the glory of God. Exactly. You can see that beauty. Exactly. Um, it would also refer to God's interaction with history, which we'll, we'll come to in a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Well, and so that was, the, that was the motive, that was the impetus for, um, for scientific discovery in the West, uh, you know, at the end of the Middle Ages and this explosion of knowledge. Um, because uh, uh, until then, throughout the Middle Ages, everything was pretty traditional. Um, everything was the way it was because the Greeks said so. And um, at the end of the Middle Ages, and this is what marks the modern era, the Protestant Reformation took place. And um, in the Protestant Reformation, there was a rejection of tradition um, and the belief that the, the, the highest religious authority on earth is the Bible. And so your source of authority is the Bible, so you go to the Bible to find out spiritual truth. You don't rely on tradition. And um, a, a group of, uh, then they were called philosophers. Today we call them scientists. But the philosophers, um, the, the key one would be um, Sir Francis Bacon and in Italy, Galileo, a few others like Copernicus and Kepler. They said, well, if you if you go back to the Bible to discover spiritual truth instead of relying on tradition, then we should stop relying on the tradition of the Greeks and um, go back to what God hath wrought, if we want to see what God hath wrought. And so that was the reason for going to the source, which is, is creation, to discover what are the laws of God. Well, and, and one of the things you discuss in the book is how uh, a paradigm has always been in place, and it's, it's been difficult at times for theologians, our natural philosophers, a.k.a. scientists, to move into the next paradigm because they're, they're a little bit stuck, in a sense. Yeah, and, most, most people are traditionalists. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard not to be. And, um, you know, after 500 years, evangelicals have built up a huge body of tradition that um, <laughs> would horrify uh, Luther and Calvin. <laughs> but, yeah, we do that. Scientists do that. And though, um, though the beginning of the scientific method with Francis Bacon um, uh, essentially devising it, what he was aiming at was trying to get the philosophy out of science. Only he succeeded in, in, in beginning to edge out uh, then the philosophy was Aristotle's philosophy. But the problem is that creates a vacuum. People are going to bring in some kind of philosophy. C.S. Lewis said that if you don't have good philosophy, you'll wind up with bad philosophy. And that's the reason for studying philosophy, to understand what bad philosophy you have, have just sucked in by living in 
uh, contemporary culture. Sure, Richard Richard John Newhouse, uh, the title of one of his books, "The Naked Public Square," is a is a is a play on the same idea. Yeah, and it's and we do it all the time, unthinking. We accept enormous philosophical assumptions without ever critically thinking about them, and so that has happened to to science and. Um, people have difficulty sorting out the difference between their science and their philosophy. So what would be an example of a philosophy? Uh, naturalism. Naturalism would be a philosophy that says that the only causes are physical causes. Uh, materialism would be another philosophy. What would it say? The only thing that exists is uh, the physical world, the material world. Well, those are huge um, philosophical ideas, but they don't have anything to do with science. But if you confuse those ideas with science, as millions of people do, then you've really painted yourself into a corner. Well, you, you, you also end up with a question of, about ultimate meaning, and you're, if you're pushing for science to give you meaning, and all that exists is what you can empirically observe, you, you've run into a, a, a bit of a dead end, haven't you? Well, you you do, and thus you wind up with philosophies like um, oh, some of those that have spun out of the the postmodern conversation, and so you get the idea that there are no values. Values are just um, uh, human feelings rather than anything objective, um, and and so you you really are out on a limb um, with that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hal, I think we, we need to, to move to a, uh, towards another break. Uh, when we come back, there, there's, there's much more to talk about in this area. Uh, Hal's developed the idea of, a, of an open universe and particular ways that it's set up for God to interact, and I, I think that's a fascinating discussion. So for now, I, I want to thank you for listening. If you're interested in hearing more programs on Christ and culture like this in our area with conferences and web resources for your use, please consider supporting the Hill Country Institute. Tax-deductible donations can be processed through our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, and there are special incentives for donations, including a copy of Andy Crouch's book, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. If you'd be interested in sponsoring this program, please contact us through the website. Again, this is Hill Country Institute Live, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. Welcome back to Hill Country Institute Live. Our special guest today is Hal Poe, author of God in the Cosmos, Divine Activity in Space, Time, and History. And Hal, we're very glad you're here with us. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. It's good to be with you, Larry. Hal, we were, we were talking about worldviews, and uh, we, we didn't, in a, in a way, fully develop your idea of the Trinitarian God interacting with the universe and as we consider alternative worldviews, how, how important is this concept of the Trinity when we think about faith and science and God interacting with the world? Well, in terms of how God interacts with the world, um, I have an automobile, and I can throw a lever, and the hood pops open, and I have full access to uh, the inner workings of the car. And you're in a, a radio studio, there's a control panel there, isn't there? Sure is. Unfortunately, there's somebody else working it besides me. <laughs> <laughs> and if you wander around that radio station, 
there will be other doors that you can pop open and get at the innards of some intricate technology. And as we look back over the scientific discoveries of the, the last 500 years, one of the things that we realize is that the universe um, is like uh, uh, something that's been made with a control panel. You can pop it open, and you've got ready access to the whole thing. The universe is as though it were um, intended to be monkeyed with. That is, it's easy access, easy accessibility. Um, in other words, at every level of the organization of the universe, there is an openness. Let me give you an example. Um, my, uh, I'm sitting in a room in the center of a building, uh, no outside windows, and yet there's light in here. And there's light in here because um, someone had the idea of violating the laws of nature. His name was Thomas Edison. And Thomas Edison violated the laws of nature because he got light to do something that it does not do in nature. You with me? Yes, that's a good point. We're talking on a telephone. And then we're also talking over um, radio waves to a, a huge audience across Texas. But am I right that uh, this will be recorded and may be accessible over the Internet? Yes, yes, absolutely. The only reason that technology is possible is because somebody came up with a way of violating the way nature normally works. Think about it. Galileo took two objects up to the top of the Leaning Tower of Pizza, a large ball and a small ball, and um, Aristotle said that the big ball will fall quicker than the small ball because it's heavier. That's logic. Only it's not true. They both fall at the same rate. Only if you get a piece of paper and wadded up into a ball and another piece of paper that you haven't wadded up in a ball and drop them, lo and behold, the wad will fall faster than the unfolded piece of paper, right? Or a plane that loses its wings. It's <laughs> and let's go to the airplane. Yeah. Why, the thing shouldn't fly. It's heavy, right? Right. Now, um, gravity works throughout the universe, but what we discover is that you can manipulate the laws of nature, that they aren't so static after all. Or as the um, pirates in the Pirates of the Caribbean, Captain Barbosa says that the, um, uh, the laws of the pirates are not so much laws as guidelines. <laughs> that is, science, what science actually does when it moves from theoretical ideas to technology is it violates the laws of nature. And we do that with genetic engineering. We do that in splitting the atom. Atoms don't um, just go around splitting. Something has to happen. You have to intervene. Are you with me? Yes. So the idea that God cannot intervene in the universe 
really isn't a very logical idea. If people can do it, God can do it, too, because God is at least as smart as we are. One one of the points you made was in the book is is that the the laws uh, in a legal sense don't have the same model as the laws of nature, and that's one of the key points I think in in allowing for interaction and quote breaking unquote. Yeah, well, this is this is an idea that Dorothy L. Sayers developed in her uh, book, The Mind of the Maker, and I commend it to your listeners. If you're not familiar with Dorothy L. Sayers, she was the, one of the great Christian apologists of the 20th century, a good friend of C.S. Lewis, and actually probably more famous than him at, at, the, at the time. And, um, yeah, when we use the word law, you have to separate what you, what you mean by it. And um, uh, the, the, in, with the human law, the main thing you mean by human law is that you can break it. So you've got this punishment system and consequence system when people break the law. Uh, it sets the boundaries. Now, um, the laws of nature are more like rock, uh, paper, scissors, that, that game. They exist, and they're real, and they're the same throughout the universe, and yet one law of nature will trump another law of nature. So you've got the law of gravity about objects falling, but you've got another law that says fast-moving air creates less pressure. And that's what gives the uh, airplane its lift, uh, allowing it to violate the law of gravity. Well, it seems like it's violated, but not really because um, gravity, yes, is still working on the plane, but so is the fast-moving air. So all of these things going on is to say that just because God established laws of nature does not mean uh, God cannot interact with the universe. Well, and there's a there's a sense that there are natural processes. Uh, well, to take let's, let's take wine for instance. Grapes grow. Wine, the grapes ferment. We have wine, but on one occasion. Uh, there were bottles or jugs of water that Jesus turned into wine. Now, was that violating the laws of nature? Or was, and C.S. Lewis talks about the, the sense that when God does a miracle, he's really at times just speeding up what, would, what, what he has set in place as a natural occurrence. Yeah, and, and let's go back to the Trinitarian idea. You have the Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, you have the king upon his throne, uh, dwelling in majesty in eternity. Now, what's the difference between eternity and where we live? We live in time and space. We live in the universe. We're affected by all of the laws of, of nature. God is not natural. God is not affected by his creation. Um, uh, e- eternity is um, not the same as a physical place or a physical time. So he's out that eternally. The sun, however, is imminent relating to creation. He, um, the, the Father gives decrees, but the Son is the one who actually does the creating and relates to creation. He is the one who takes on flesh. 
he is the one who experiences full mortality. He is the one who experiences death. Um, and he is the one who hears our prayers. Remember, he's the mediator between us and the Father. Um, so you have the Father in eternity, uh, yet the Son mediating uh, the physical world. But then you have the Spirit. Uh, the Father is not present everywhere. The Son is not present everywhere. The Spirit, however, is present everywhere. Um, and thus, from the smallest uh, subdivision of the atom uh, to the largest galaxy, the Spirit is ever-present. Um, and uh, so you, you have Father, Son, and Spirit. You don't have God as in Islam. You have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, one God, yet at the same time throughout the universe and not even in the universe. See, the Father not even in the universe, but the Holy Spirit everywhere. So it's, it's not the way the average person thinks, but it's who God is. And um, it's not so much what kind of a universe allows God to be active in it. It's what kind of a universe did God make um, that makes sense when you realize what kind of God exists. Well, in the, in the book you talk about, uh, and we, we may not have time before another break, but you mention particular uh, ways that we can see where God can interact with the universe itself, with the, in quantum theory, in chaos, chaos theory, and genetics, particularly epigenetics. And uh, there's there's room t for God's interaction there, and then there's this this sense that God is very personal in moving with us, and that's where you talked about the imagination. Yeah. So so it's it's both the a sense of the impersonal matter that He's able to touch, and there's there are those windows that are open, if you will, as well yeah. as this window into our own soul. Yeah. Do we have a minute? Or do you need to break? Okay. Yeah, the, the old philosophical way of thinking of the science is that everything is determined, cause and effect. And that holds over in the way a lot of people think about genetics and DNA. We are the product of our DNA. Well, no. What physicists have discovered is that um, uh, things are not determined, that um, at the fundamental nature of the universe, the way um, uh, the quantum and the, qu the quantum world is the sub-world inside the atom, uh, that it's, it's a strange thing that the um, um, electron, which runs around the, uh, the nucleus, uh, circles the nucleus. It's not a perfect circle. It's a, it's a, it's a, an amazing thing, it acts like a particle and a wave at the same time. And those are mutually, those are mutually exclusive, mutually exclusive ideas. Yeah. How can something be a particle and a wave? Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, well, it, it is. It's absolutely fascinating. And here's the thing. A lot of people have trouble with the idea that Jesus can be fully God and fully man at the same time. That seems like a logical contradiction. But at the fundamental building block of the universe. The universe is made up of this same seeming contradiction, but 
profound truth that um, the electron is both particle and wave at the same time. And I can expand on that a little bit after okay. the break. Let's come back to that after the break, because I, I think it might be good for us to sit with a little bit of suspense during a break. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, again, I invite you to visit the website of the Hill Country Institute. We have uh, worked to serve the body of Christ in our area, in the area of faith and culture. We brought together an interesting group of folks from time to time to talk about faith and art, people like Jeremy Begbie and others. And we talked about faith and science with people like Walter Kaiser and Alistair McGrath. And we talk a lot about C.S. Lewis with people like Jerry Root and, and folks like Hal Poe. So please visit hillcountryinstitute.org. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Hill Country Institute Live. This is Larry Leninschmidt, your host, and we have today a special guest, Hal Poe, who is a professor of faith and culture, a Chuck Colson professor of faith and culture at Union University in Tennessee. And Hal, you were you were just trying to explain how something can be two things at once, a particle yeah, and let's, a wave. Um, <laughs> most of us, um, once we get out of high school, um, may forget some of our science. But remember the difference between a particle and a wave. Uh, don't think about a wave at the beach crashing on the shore. Think about it out on the ocean. It goes up and down and up and down, and the waves are extended over miles. Now, you sitting in the, uh, the studio and your listener, maybe, what, 100 miles away? Sure. Mm-hmm. Is connected by a radio wave. That is, and it, it, you, you talk about the frequency, high frequency, low frequency. High frequency would be how frequently or how close together are the waves. So low frequency would be whoa, 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 whoa. High frequency would be that's They're before, close together. That's before and after caffeine, isn't it? That's before and after caffeine. Okay. So, um, but the idea of extension, a wave is an extended thing from you all the way to your listeners, wherever they may be. And waves extend out into space. Um, light waves, um, electromagnetic waves, extend, they can extend enormous distances. Now, what's a particle? Well, in the old days, they used to um, uh, think of atoms as billiard balls. Well, that's a fixed concrete thing. It's in one place. And an electron is like a particle and a wave at the same time. How we're, we're having a little bit of difficulty. Are you, uh, by chance, close to the phone? Or? We're having a little bit of difficulty hearing. Are you, are you with the phone okay? I'm right there. Okay, good. Sorry. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Um, so, um, and, and in the same in the same sense, um, uh, the Holy Spirit uh, extends throughout the universe. Okay. So the the sense that the Holy Spirit is omnipresent and both involved in the physical being of our universe 
and involved with us personally uh, is is really an extension of what you're talking about that the that the uh, third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, sent from the Father and the Son, is impactful, impacting on a continuing basis. So, uh, I think the Trinity. The Trinity. Uh, there's been a lot of ink spilled about the Trinity and trying to understand it. And in some sense, three and one is incomprehensible. One and three is incomprehensible. But as we understand more about the basic nature of the universe then it helps us to probably get a better sense of the complexity of the Trinity. So, Hal? Hello. Yeah, okay. We had a little technical glitch there. But uh, just thinking about the, the, com- the complexity that we're noting in the universe uh, helps us to understand the complexity of the, Holy, of the Holy Spirit being the third person of the Trinity and the incomprehensibleness of three and one and one and three. But back to and the yet, uh, the nature of the universe reflects that kind of a God. Mm-hmm. So back to the back to the electron, though we were okay. Yeah. Well, um, so at the uh, at the atomic level, things are not determined. There's an openness there, and that openness. If you just had a brute universe, nothing would ever happen. Um, you have to have a universe that is open to something different happening. Now think about that for a moment, because we, use, we live in a universe um, that does things, uh, and this gets to the idea of meaning and purpose. If it was just a static materialistic universe, it wouldn't have any direction, and yet the universe gets more and more complicated as we go along. Now the materialist can say, oh, that's just evolution. Here's the problem. <laughs> the, the very idea of evolution is contradictory to a brute static universe. There's no reason why anything different ever would have happened. In a pure cause-effect universe, you don't have a new thing happening. Well, and as you talk about, and as you think about emergence in the book, you you point out the Big Bang, the initial expansion, uh, what happened just beyond Planck time, uh, the growth of elements, uh, the Cambrian explosion, and the the explosion of human capacity. The, these aren't static things, are they? No, and it's the same sort of of sequence that you find in the first chapter of of Genesis, going from a very simple um, universe to a very complex universe, finally culminating in creatures that can interact with God. Mm-hmm. Creatures made in the image of God who can even violate the will of God. An amazing thing. Absolutely amazing. There had to be a, a universe created that would allow for free will or it would be deterministic, doesn't it? Wouldn't it? it, it exactly. And essentially mm-hmm. nothing would have ever happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you point out that, that the universe requires freedom for the triune God to work. So that, and we see we see a, a physical aspect of that, and then on the other hand, God's freedom is related to our free will. We, you talk a lot about the imagination, and and how that's a point where the Holy Spirit uh, can, in a sense, meet with us, and and this is a very creative area. You know, we have we have a big music scene here. We have the Southwest Research Center, and and we have tech companies starting out. 
and and you and and yet the imagination becomes this point where for good or evil we can be impacted for good by the holy spirit uh, you point out that we can have distortions in our maybe in our receptors if you will that lead us to do things that uh, aren't for the best of anyone so yeah but people people often dismiss imagination because it's not really reliable unlike the intellect the emotions and the character which are always sterling well i say that tongue in cheek because in fact <laughs> Our intellect, our emotions, our character are not reliable. The imagination is as reliable as the rest. And here I have to, we'll, we'll bring it full circle and come back to Edgar Allan Poe. Sure. Um, most people don't know that Poe became a Christian six weeks before he died, but the year before he died, he wrote a 150-page treatise on the universe called Eureka. And he begins that that the purpose of this is to understand the universe and what kind of God exists uh, against the backdrop of the problem of suffering. And uh, Poe began this, this um, fascinating book in which he is the original person to propose the Big Bang Theory and the primary ideas of relativity theory decades before Einstein. Mm-hmm. Um, but he begins with a discussion of the kind of knowledge we have. And he said that during the, the modern era, we've been so fascinated with empirical knowledge through our senses and rational knowledge through our intellect that we have missed the fact that every important, or, or he would say every real discovery of new knowledge in science or any other area isn't the result of intellect or um, uh, sensory observation, but is the result of imagination. That it is, it, it is the imagination that sees things as they've never been seen before. For instance, when Copernicus looked at the universe and said, oh my goodness, the earth goes around the sun. It isn't that he had any new data. There were no new empirical observations. And he didn't arrive at that through mathematical calculation. His imagination saw it in a different way. And Poe po concluded that, that humans have uh, an organ of perception that we've, that we've discounted because um, for whatever reason we assign it to, oh, that's what poets do or that's what musicians do and denigrate it as though it's the lowest thing when, in fact, it is the highest thing. When you think about it, dogs do empiricism. You know, that's, and, 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 um, but only humans um, sing songs and um, conceive of the universe. And so as you go through the Bible, whenever revelation comes, it's in words like, I heard or I saw. And that's what our imagination do, does. Our imagination is the faculty that God has given us for perceiving spiritual reality. It is the open door into the human soul through which God speaks. How another time I'd like to talk about the moral formation and how we form the imagination as, as a part of our educational process. I know that's something you've thought about. 
I hope we can. Yeah, because that's a that's a fascinating topic. You know, thinking thinking about Edgar Allan Poe, there's there's one line uh, from the book that I I, I think uh, you wonder: Does the universe have purpose? Is there meaning? And and the other Poe wrote: The plots of God are perfect. The universe is a plot of God. And I, I just love that because it, it really captures it. It's this sense that God was plotting and planning and did yeah. this thing, and, yeah. and we're part of it. And, uh, and Poe's solution to the problem of suffering is we are in the middle of the story. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the story, God will bring all things to completion. He will make things right. Yes, and and uh, so Poe understood that God created the universe and— um, uh, that he will bring it to an end, and in bringing it to an end, he will bring all things to himself. Yep, I like what Lewis said that we we don't know if we're at the end of the beginning or the beginning of the end or in the yeah. middle or wherever, but yeah. wherever it is, God will work out His purposes. Exactly, and we're privileged to be part of that. So, Hal, it, it, this has just been a great delight. It's been fun to be with you. I, I, I thank you for your time today. Um, I know you're you're you've got plenty of things to do and it's just great fun to to get to visit and i I hope we'll get to do this again sometime thank you so much larry it's good to talk with you thank you i appreciate it and folks uh, if you're listening uh, we invite you to continue to to tune in for the hill country institute live our future guest will include tom Seidel, president of concordia university mary poplin who's an educator and author who talk about her new book is reality secular Uh, john namey of allies against slavery a group that fights human trafficking and Doug Mann on his new book, The Art of Helping Others, How Artists Can Serve God and Love the World. So thank you again for being with us. This is Hill Country Institute Live. Visit us at hillcountryinstitute.org. We'll talk to you later.